Buford Pusser's Last Ride Accident or Murder? I'm Richard. I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Welcome back for part two of our Buford Pusser story. We're glad to have all of our friends with us from around the world who have been faithfully listening. We really appreciate that. And if you are listening for the first time, welcome. And hopefully you'll uh, go back and listen to the first part of this episode. So last week we talked about Buford Pusser, the man that inspired the film uh, Walking Tall, a true legend, a, a mountain of a man, who survived countless attacks, um, multiple shootings and stabbings, and uh, just wouldn't give up. Uh, even when he had lost most of his face and uh, he had lost his wife in an ambush, the man kept going and, and would not stop until uh, his job was done. Uh, now, this evening, we are going to be telling the second half of the story about what happened to Buford Pusser, because unfortunately Buford Pusser is no longer with us. He died in a tragic car accident. But the circumstances leading up to that accident have always had a large question uh, surrounding them. Was it really an accident, or was it something more? And tonight we're going we're gonna to discuss what that more may have been, because let's face it, Buford had made a lot of enemies in the town that he lived in during that short time that he was sheriff. So, Dad, I know last week you said you were going to talk a little bit more about how you met Petey Plunk. So, how did you come across the story about Buford? How did you come across uh, Petey and Buford's mother? Well, Gary, as you uh, know, we mentioned this uh, last uh, week, and you've known this for some time, that uh, this story uh, takes place during the Vietnam War era. And you also know that uh, your dad uh, loves collecting old historical documents and autographs and, st and things like that. And this was a time when I was just starting to collect autographs. Now, when you say collection, we really should clarify this is an obsession. Uh, for anybody <laughs> who knows uh, what uh, my Strange Addiction TV show is, uh, collecting autographs would be your strange addiction. We actually, folks, just as a little side note, uh, for multiple years, I had documents underneath uh, the bed in my bedroom uh, growing up, and we've had documents and autographs uh, pouring out of cabinets all over the place. So I would say you have a small collection. Well, I wanted you to be very close to history, Gary. I live with history. Uh, that's true. Uh, so let's go back. You mentioned uh, Buford Pusser, who uh, our audience, I think, knows by now, the sheriff of McNary County, Tennessee, who was the subject of a movie called Walking Tall and two subsequent sequels by Bing Crosby Productions, um, Walking Tall 2 and then Walking Tall Final Chapter. Um, <clears throat> I had gone to see that first movie called Walking Tall, and uh, that summer, I, I planned a vacation which would uh, take me right through Tennessee where Helen Pusser, his mother, and where Buford's daughter still lived. So I called Mrs. Pusser on the phone. These were back in the days where you could do that and they wouldn't think you were some kook. <laughs> like you mean like a telemarketer trying <laughs> yeah. to sell uh, pills yeah. or insurance? <laughs> there, was, there was a lot more trust. You know, uh, We lived in a much 
friendlier, kinder society than, than we do today. Yeah, you could say that again. <clears throat> so I called Mrs. Pusser on the phone. I told her uh, how much I appreciated her son's story, and I asked if she would send me an autograph. Uh, that's all I was asking for. And I could not believe it. I could not believe her answer. She told me, or she responded, with an invitation to drop by the family home. Buford Pusser's home, where she was now living. I wasted absolutely no time in accepting that invitation, Gary. That was a done deal. Wow. So that was the highlight of my vacation that summer, as you can imagine. Sure. So I arrived at that. It was a very neat and attractive brick home in Adamsville, Tennessee. Today it's a, a Buford Pusser Museum. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll stop in, visit for about an hour or so, and be thrilled beyond belief that I met Sheriff Buford Pusser's mother. Now, as it turned out, my visit lasted for three days. Uh, Mrs. Pusser just <clears throat> wanted me to see everything. She wanted to me to meet everyone, and she wanted them to take me to the places where Buford's story actually took place. So I had three days of an incredible journey collecting an incredible story. To this day, Gary, 40 and more years later, I still remember in my mind Mrs. Pusser opening a drawer and pulling out Buford's personal belongings, and there were his grade school report cards. She'd kept them all. Oh, wow. His grade school report cards, and she still treasured them. She was his mother. And then she introduced me to his brother, Big John. He was probably as big as Buford, uh, a giant of a man. And he operated a furniture store in town. He gave me his business card. I still have that today. Then Mrs. Pusser introduced me to someone who would become my friend for years, and that was Petey Plunk. Buford Pusser's deputy and close friend. Petey at the time was working as, I believe, a used car salesman. But even that many years after the Buford Pusser story had taken place, Petey still wore a pistol in an ankle holster for his protection. Really? Yeah. So some of the people connected with the Buford Pusser story, even that many years later, were a little concerned about the folks who might still be running around. So uh, that's one of the first thing I, I noticed, by the way. Mm. Now, <clears throat> Pete uh, generously offered to take me around to all those actual locations. Where the locations where he was <clears throat> shot and attacked? And everything, and, and where his car crashed and he was killed. Um, and uh, the first thing that I, I learned right away, that the original movie, Walking Tall, wasn't even filmed at the uh, actual location in McNary County, Tennessee. It was filmed in a nearby county and not on any of the actual locations in McNary. And so um, Pete and I visited the motel where Buford Pusser was involved in that fatal shootout, uh, complete with bullet holes still in the wall. Now, what, what fatal shootout are we talking about? Because we, we kind of hinted last week about uh, different people that Buford had upset. So what's the story about the hotel? Gary, I think to uh, fully understand the uh, shootout at the motel, we have to mention that you and I have no doubt that Buford Pusser uh, had to deal with some pretty rough customers in his lifetime. Oh, of course. 
uh, just how rough. We're going to look at that shootout then in the motel room that you asked about that I visited with Pete Plunk, where, like I said, the bullet holes were still visible in the walls. I was closer to those bullet holes than I am to you right now. Uh, Louise Hathcock, she operated the Shamrock Motel in McNary County, and it was right near the Tennessee-Mississippi state line. She had a boyfriend. His name was Towhead White, and he, he ran the White Iris Cafe across the street. What a name, Toehead White. Right. Yeah, nice nice combo, though. Uh, the girlfriend uh, operates the motel. The boyfriend operates the cafe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that would be a nice combination to provide an, uh, a pretty comfortable income, wouldn't you think? I would imagine it would be. Who could be uh, unhappy with that arrangement? Yeah, well, you know what? Bed and board weren't the only services that uh, Louise and Toehead provided. Uh, most of their income, if you can believe this, came from illegal alcohol, from prostitution, from gambling. So they are part of this organized crime ring that we referred to earlier on in our podcasts. Oh. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Uh, they did even far more than this criminal activity. Uh, their greed knew no limits, absolutely no limits. These guys were psychopaths, Gary. Louise and Toehead never seemed to be able to rake in illegal money fast enough, so this is the plan they cooked up. Are you ready for this? I'm all ears. This plan eventually led to the AAA Auto Club to designate that route between Chicago and New Orleans as one of the most dangerous in America, if you can believe that. Okay, now because I really, of these because of these two people. Now I need to really know what they were doing that yes, caused well, AAA like, to say this is a bad route to take. Yeah, yeah, because of what Louise and Toehead were doing there, and unlike the Motel Six where they'll leave the light on for you at night, uh, Louise left the Shamrock's light on only for so long, and then under the cover of darkness, Toehead would come over. And the pair would enter the sleeping tourists' rooms where Toehead would hammer the innocent travelers to death while they were asleep in their beds. Oh, my God. Not once, not twice, but a regular routine. So much so that the AAA said, don't travel that route. Now, after removing wallets and valuables from their victims he and Louise would dump the victim's bodies in the river. So do they have a number of how many people that they killed and stole money from? No, but a lot of people disappeared, and Petey Plunk says that uh, the Tennessee River uh, still hasn't yielded up all the bodies of those who were victims of Louise and, and Toehead. And so, uh, Gary, this uh, murder and mayhem went on for quite a while, and Buford Pusser was finally able to get arrest warrants for Louise on illegal whiskey and theft charges. So as he and Pete Plunk and another deputy named Jim Moffat arrived at the motel, they found Louise in an ugly mood. And uh, she had a bourbon and Coke in her hand, and it's obvious, uh, it was obvious to them that that was not her first, second, or third of the day. So uh, Pusser uh, hit pay dirt, he thought. Uh, Louise decided she wanted to come clean, she told him, and give him all the information he needed about her illegal activities. But she had one condition. Only he could go into her living quarters located just off of the motel office. 
So the deputies had to wait in the lobby, and Pusser agreed to this. But then, once they got into Louise's living quarters, um, things went downhill in a heartbeat. Louise opened a dresser drawer. She pulled out a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Uh, Buford saw it. He fell against the door in an effort to get out of her line of fire. She got off a shot. It went uh, harmlessly into the plaster near his head. She ran toward him, holding that gun up toward him, attempting to fire a second time. But Gary, incredibly, the gun misfired. Oh. And by this time, Buford Pusser's forty-one Magnum was out. And he fired at Louise. The first shot hit her in the neck. The second shot hit her in the neck. And he got off a final round that went into her jaw, and she was dead before she hit the floor. Oh, my gosh. Her bourbon and Coke was unscathed on the dresser. Uh, and like I say, I actually uh, saw those bullet holes uh, still in the wall when I visited there. Um, we also, uh, Pete Punk... Uh, Pete Plunk's tour also uh, took me to the New Hope Church, and that was uh, where the killers of Pauline waited uh, that fateful um, August morning when they ambushed Buford, right. which we talked about last week. Well, that uh, they, they waited behind the New Hope Church. They were hidden behind that church uh, waiting for Buford to come barreling by, and uh, so Petey uh, also took me to that location. And uh, those are photos you've seen of me or Pete Plunk pointing out the church that I, and I took those photos. Uh, and, and one of them ended up in uh, True Detective magazine. Uh, then uh, we ended our tour with Pete taking me to the crash site where Buford lost his life a few years later in his fatal car crash. And by the time I arrived back at the, the Pusser home, I had a huge number of details concerning what really happened to Buford Pusser connected with that fatal car crash. And much of my information, Gary, was far different from the story that would eventually be told by Hollywood. Now, the Tennessee Highway Patrol ruled Buford's fatal car crash as an accident. Mrs. Pusser and Pete Plunk believed otherwise. They weren't so convinced about it. No. After all, Gary, who would believe that a man trained in high-speed pursuit would lose control of his vehicle under normal driving conditions and not try to steer out of the situation? Besides, Buford Pusser was a guy who pursued his wife's killers, as we learned last week, while he himself was gravely wounded. He didn't lose control of his bullet-ridden patrol car back then, and he continued to pursue the shooters as he slipped into shock. Buford gave up that chase only when he found himself slipping in, into unconsciousness, as we learned last week. So to just, you know, uh, have his car go out of control on this lonely country lane, uh, and he, he wasn't under the influence of alcohol or anything else, um, it was pretty hard for everybody to swallow that it was an accident. Pretty suspicious. Yeah, now everyone was uh, expected to believe that he froze at the wheel of his car on this familiar road under normal driving conditions while coming home from the county fair. And I'll tell you right now, to his family and near family like Petey Plunk, it just didn't seem plausible. Uh, then the a moment occurred, Gary, that would link me to the Buford Pusser legend forever. Mrs. Pusser handed me the tie rod from Buford Pusser's red Chevy Corvette the vehicle he crashed and died in a few years earlier. 
And now the tie rod, that's what uh, controls the steering for the car. Yes. And it was in two pieces. And Mrs. Pusser pointed out the surface where the tie rod had been split. And she told me that there was no way it could have snapped at impact with the dirt embankment during the fatal crash. And Petey Plunk agreed. All right. Now we have, we have some more audio of Petey and discussing his theory about what could have happened. There's a lot of questions that hasn't been answered about Buford death. I think the investigation was stopped too sudden. I don't know. They, they could have been a lot more, I think, found out about it. I had someone really tried to have found out something about it. Uh, I mean, you've got to have known Buford and, and, and know his driving habits and, and things like that to really say that he just just had an accident and got killed. I just I just can't believe it because of the it's two or three questions that to me that that wasn't answered right. You know, uh, about the tie rod end of, of being graded off like it was. Oh, it's one thing. Backtracking, could you re-explain the tie rod and how you feel that it couldn't have it couldn't have been an accident? Well, the reason I do it because it was graded off. Like it had been rubbed on the pavement. It was like it was dragging on the pavement. If the tie rod end hadn't have been dragging on the pavement, it wouldn't have been graded off because it hit a dirt bank. And dirt will not cut into steel and grade it off like uh, concrete will. It was graded off flat. Helen has the tie rod ends showing it. Anyone can see it. And uh, when the car hit the bank, the dirt bank, then it flipped over and landed on top. The tie rod end wouldn't have had any reason to have drug on the pavement after it landed on top. As a matter of fact, the car didn't move very far after it flipped over. It caught fire and burned up. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I believe that the tie rod end was broke on the car before it went across the highway. And another reason, because I do know how Buford drove, I've been in some real tight places with Buford in driving, where he'd never, like, freeze to the steering wheel or get excited and lose, uh, uh, just couldn't turn the steering wheel. I've been with him when he, it, it, had he had gone, uh, you know, been going to do something like that, he would have, he was in a, a situation where he would have done it. And he never did do that. And uh, I feel like that. Since he didn't, the, the car, when the black mark started spitting across the road, if Buford had had control of the car, the steering wheel of the car, to where he could have turned the wheel, at least he would have been trying to straighten the car up. The you way it was. He, you don't think he tried to uh, straighten the car no, up? No, I mean, there wasn't any sign there. The if he had, the car would have been fish tasted. It would have been sliding back forth. He hit loose gravel after he went across the road. Yet it never did bother. Yeah, it was just, uh, the skid marks were straight. It never, the, the back, it never fishtailed. What I call where your back end is wobbling back and forth. Had he had control of that car with that steering wheel, he would have been trying to straighten it up. And he didn't do that. What did the skid marks tell you that he did do? That he just, the only thing he could do was just lock the car down and break his speed because he couldn't turn this wheel, he couldn't turn his wheels on. And I feel like he just locked it down, which, your instinct would tell you to do that if you can't, if your steering, if your tie rod end falls off your car. 
without thinking, you will automatically hit the brakes and lock it down. And if you hadn't got any control over the steering wheel, just keep it locked. Had Buford uh, had control over the steering wheel, I feel like that he would have been trying to turn the car. He would have released his brakes to try to get it back under control because he was a good driver. He was a fast driver, but he was a good driver. And he didn't make any effort, as far as the marks go, he didn't make any effort to straighten the car up whatsoever. It was just skidding, just like he locked it down, and the only thing he had to do was just hold it down and try to break the speed, because he knew it was going to wreck. Do you think there was another vehicle there? There was other marks on the road. Now, I couldn't say whether there was other, whether the vehicle was sitting in the road. Maybe the reason he locked it down might have been when the tire right in broke. They could have been there before, but there was other tire marks on the road in front of where Buford went off at. Were they dark tire marks? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Because uh, skid marks fade after two or three days. Uh -huh. Well, I think for dark marks, like it could have been out where someone had taken off real fast. And uh, like I don't know, I, I couldn't say that there was a car sitting there, but I couldn't say there wasn't either. I don't know. Now, Mrs. Pusser told me that a few days before Buford's fatal accident, the car was not in his possession, Gary. It was in a garage, a local garage, getting some mechanical work done. Uh, she believed during that time that someone partially sawed the tie rod, weakening it to the point that it broke. As Buford was returning home from the county fair, he lost control of his vehicle. He crashed into a dirt embankment. The car flipped and caught fire as Petey described, and the legendary sheriff from Walking Tall was dead. Uh, there was also some concern about his behavior the weekend before the fatal crash. Buford certainly had some high medical bills from all of the reconstructive surgery that was necessary to put his face back together after that ambush uh, that killed his wife Pauline and, and gravely injured him. However, there had been two films and substantial Hollywood money coming from those Bing Crosby productions, far more than the medical bills required. And B Buford was wondering, where is it? He wanted to know something was going on with his money. That's it was being question. managed by other people. And he sensed that he, some of it was gone. A lot of it was gone and missing. So that weekend when his car was out of his possession in that garage, mm -hmm. he went around telling people that someone close to him was taking his money and he intended to find out who it was. And from what we already know about Buford Pusser, no one doubted that he would do what he said he would do. Right. I mean, the man was an unstoppable force. Uh, absolutely. And so if you have stolen his money and he says he knows his money has been stolen and he knows who, who did it and he's going to be coming after them, then they needed to be on high alert. And so shortly after that, he was dead from a so-called accident. The family believed that money, movie money was missing also. The tie rod looked suspicious. So I agreed to contact a friend of mine who worked for ABC Radio in Washington. Uh, you know about him, Carl Rochelle, bless his heart. Right. He's, he's since passed away also. Um, he alerted the producers of the network's uh, television news shows, and it didn't take long for the producers to tell Carl that they really weren't interested in the story. They felt that the Buford Pusser story was just too old. So that was a dead end. 
So meanwhile, Mrs. Pusser reported to me that she had been contacted by someone who claimed they could get the story on those very same news programs. She sent that person the tie rod, and he soon disappeared with the only piece of crash evidence still in existence. And to this date, Carrie, neither this guy who called her nor the tie rod have ever been located. Uh, Unbelievable. Wow. Okay, and so you're probably wanting to know what happened to the missing money. Yeah. (laughs) Whenever you want to follow, uh, get an answer to a mystery, you always, what, follow the Money. money. Right. Several years later, the Ku Klux Klan tried to mount an invasion of the tiny island of Grenada. I remember that. The federal government disrupted the plot, and according to one of my sources, some of the financing for that madcap scheme may have been none other than the missing Buford Pusser movie money. So Buford Mm. may have been right after all. Someone could have been taking his money for their own purposes, and he believed it had to be someone close to him, someone he trusted. Yeah. So I wondered what I was going to do with this mountain of material that I'd collected about Buford. Uh, and uh, you, you and our listeners have already heard uh, the wonderful interviews that I collected in this process. So I, I kept thinking about a very disappointed old lady back in Tennessee who had lost both her son and her daughter-in-law and her grandchildren were orphans. And she was hoping against hope that someone would shine the public spotlight on her son's suspicious death. And I wasn't getting very far with my friends at ABC. Then I got a break. I was reading the classified ads in Writer's Digest and noticed that True Detective magazine was in the market for some interesting stories. So I knew that True Detective was the publication that first brought Buford Pusser to the attention of Hollywood. So I contacted the editor, told him what I had, and asked him if he were interested in me writing the story. Al Gavoni was his name. He was the chief editor, and he got back to me in no time. Yes, he absolutely wanted the story. No, it wasn't too old. Not for the magazine that first brought public acclaim to Sheriff Buford Pusser. Uh Uh-uh. So Al gave me the green light, and he personally guided me through the experience of writing my very first national magazine article. Well, that's exciting. And when it was completed, Al called me and asked me to expand my story into a double feature. Almost gave me a heart attack. I had never done this in the first place, but somehow I expanded it into a double feature. And he also said, I'm going to give you the cover. And I would be paid double. He'd also pay me for every photo that ran with the article, whether it came from me or his magazine's files. What an incredible person. I never met Al Gavoni in person, but he is one of my heroes in journalism uh, to this very day. Al Gavoni, chief editor of um, True Detective magazine, which is a magazine that goes all the way back to the 1920s. I'm sorry it's no longer in publication because it was an American icon. And so I was excited for myself. I was excited for Helen Pusser, who would now get her version of the accident out in print. Al Gavoni, as I said, was a heck of a nice guy. I've had a number of mentors in my life, but Al really stands out as my inspiration in magazine writing. He even let me try my hand at writing the sidebar piece uh, in the story, which was usually the editor's territory. And the rest is history. True Detective uh, published a story called Buford Pusser's Last Ride, Accident or Murder. Al Gavoni told me that the issue sold out and they only had an archival copy left. 
And I also know that he generously shared his last few copies with the magazine's biggest fan, Mrs. Helen Pusser, in Adamsville, Tennessee. And it was because of that article, right, that uh, Walking Tall, the final chapter, was made. Well, I'm not sure because uh, when I got to see that movie, uh, I didn't recognize much of it as historical fact. <laughs> oh. Maybe, maybe if I'm generous, maybe five minutes worth out of a 90-minute uh, movie or so. That's pretty generous. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, I hesitate to connect my article with that movie because um, the movie... The first movie was reasonably accurate, but after that, uh, Hollywood just went berserk with the fiction. Well, I have to say, uh, this was definitely a story that you couldn't hear anywhere else. Uh, and one that, I mean, a, an experience that I know you'll never forget in a lifetime. Yeah, and those, uh, those tapes have never been heard in public before. No, those are actually, those Folks, are your... you're hearing those for the first time. Right, those are your private tapes. So yeah. uh, what you heard uh, on, on both of these broadcasts, you will never hear anywhere else other than Richard and Gary's incredible stories. Which brings me to the point, it is that time again. Well, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And that really was an incredible story. We're so glad that you could join us for it. And join us again next week for another incredible tale.